Chapter 3, Part 1 of A History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by Samuel Cheatham. Chapter 3, Part 1 The Early Struggles of the Church. The first external enemy which nascent Christianity had to encounter was the malice of the Jew. To the Jews were due the deaths of St. Stephen, St. James the Apostle, and St. James the Just. It was by the Jews that St. Paul was evil and treated almost to the death. Even where they had no political power, their irregular animosity was still active. But the most extensive and cruel of all the persecutions which Christians had to endure at the hands of the Jews was that which befell them when Bar Kokhba raised the standard of insurrection against the Romans. Christians, of course, refused to acknowledge the pretended Son of the Star as Messiah. Their principles forbade them to join in rebellion, hence they had to endure the wrath of those who regarded them as renegades, while the Roman government simply looked upon them as Jews. The rebellion of Bar Kokhba was put down, and a new Roman town, Aelia Capitolina, built on the ruins of Jerusalem by the direction of the emperor Hadrian. When the Jews could practice no violent persecution, they made amends by the circulation of calumnies. Their schools of learning at Babylon and Tiberias seem to have been centers of this kind of manufacture. But the great internecine struggle was between the church and the empire. The empire was no doubt greatly more tolerant in matters of religion than the small republics of Greece had been. It necessarily sanctioned the worship of the gods of the conquered nations which were included within its borders, but it was not indifferent in matters of religion. The Roman gods were the gods of the state, and the state by no means looked favorably upon forms of worship which tended to diminish the reverence due to them. The old republic was extremely jealous of foreign superstitions and the principle of the law which forbade the worship of foreign gods not adopted by the state was never allowed to drop wholly out of sight. In a Roman colony we find the complaint brought against the apostles that they taught customs which it was not lawful for Romans to receive or to observe. Pamponia Gracina was accused before a family tribunal of practicing foreign superstition in the days of Nero. Magic was forbidden under severe penalties. The laws of the Twelve Tables assigned death as the penalty for practicing incantation, and probably the miracles of healing attributed to the Christians, especially cures of demoniacs, brought upon them the suspicion of magic. The possession of magical books was also a crime, and the sacred books of Christians were often reputed magical. We have the testimony of Tertullian that the principal charges against Christians were those of sacrilege and lyse majesty and his words imply that to refuse to worship the gods of the empire was to be guilty of sacrilege. The punishment of sacrilege was in the discretion of the proconsul, who might apportion it according to the circumstances of the case and the age and sex of the criminal. In extreme cases he might sentence offenders to be burnt alive, crucified, or cast to wild beasts. Under the head of Lyse Majestas, was brought every act and every word which might tend to impair the authority of the government or to bring it into discredit. 
it is easy to see how wide-arranged charges of lyse majesty might have. Probably, the rumor that Christians expected existing states soon to pass away, and a new kingdom to succeed brought them under the notice of the tribunals. But there was nothing of which the empire was more intolerant than the formation of associations unknown to the law. From the very earliest days of imperial rule, attempts were made to check the formation of clubs and societies, and severe legislation was directed against them. One who held an unlawful meeting was liable to the same pains and penalties as one who seized a public place by armed force, that is, to the penalties of lyse majesty. Some exceptions were, however, made. Religious meetings were not forbidden, provided that they were so conducted as not to offend against the laws relating to illicit collegia, and benefit societies consisting of poor people and slaves were permitted in Rome to meet and make their payments to the common fund once a month. A rescript of Septimius Severus extended this provision to all Italy and the provinces. Christian congregations may sometimes have received legal recognition as benefit clubs, for they did undoubtedly contribute at their meetings to a common fund for the purpose of mutual succor, though they could scarcely have complied with the condition of meeting only once a month. But on the whole, the church was clearly regarded as a secret society of a very dangerous kind, having occult signs and passwords, and bound together in a confederation which extended over the whole empire. That Christians formed unlawful associations is the first charge brought against them by Celsus and Tertullian. A Christian advocate scarcely attempts to refute it. The Roman statesmen saw in the Christian church either the ephemeral product of fanatical folly and delusion, or a slinking gang of conspirators, a lucifuga natio, which the state must needs put down were it only for its own safety. The secrecy of their meetings in time of persecution was a main cause of the calumnies which were circulated against them. The empire was full of mysteries and secret orgies, yet against none do we find such vile accusations brought as those which were reiterated against the Christians. They were atheists. They indulged in theestian banquets. They reveled in horrible incest. They worshipped a monster with an ass's head. That they should be called atheists was perhaps not altogether unnatural. Those who forsook the temples of the gods and worshipped no deity graven by art and man's device were to the heathen populace, of course, atheists. Their nightly assemblies for the feast of love and the holy communion and a few mystical words relating to the agape, the commemoration of the death of Christ, and the participation of his flesh and blood, grossly misunderstood, gave rise probably to the horrible charges of murder, strange food, and illicit love. Such rumors as these caused men like Tacitus to regard the Church of Christ, the only society in the empire in which a pure and noble morality was taught, as a loathsome superstition. It was thought to bring down the wrath of the gods on the state. If an earthquake shook a city, or a river overflowed its banks, or the seasons were unpropitious, the cry arose, To the lions with the Christians! And it must not be forgotten that all those who lived by pagan worship found their occupation threatened, 
the makers of silver shrines of the ephesian artemis were but specimens of a class found wherever a temple existed and not only those whose material interests were in danger but paganism in general found its old mythology its civic feeling its frank enjoyment of the life of this world called in question by a sect which preached humility and self-renunciation offering a distant heaven in return for the pleasures of the present life many christians felt it perilous to the soul to swear the soldier's oath or to undertake municipal offices true they were submissive to the lawful authority but the general suspicion against them was so strong that their professions of allegiance were thought to savor more of policy than of truth the empire could perhaps scarcely be expected to tolerate in the midst of it such a society it did in fact persecute the rising sect with a very vigorous animosity yet not steadily or continuously but according to the views of various emperors or even of provincial governors what was at first popular hatred of an obscure sect became in less than three centuries an organized effort of the pagan power to put down its growing rival when suetonius tells us that claudius expelled from rome quote, the jews who were making constant uproar with one crestus as a ringleader close quote, he probably refers to the fact that the preaching of christ set the jews quarter at rome in a commotion so far however christianity appears as a jewish sect not subject to direct persecution it is under nero that the christians first appear as suffering torture and death as a sect everywhere spoken against when rome was burnt and rumor assigned the guilt of the deed to nero himself he sought to turn the popular rage from himself to the christians already the objects of the most unreasonable suspicions they were sewed up in hides of wild beasts and torn by dogs they were crucified they were wrapped in tar-cloth and set on fire their quote, hatred of the human race close quote, was held enough to convict them of this incendiarism or at all events to justify their punishment the tendency of the roman populace to wreak on the christians the wrath they felt at some civic or national misfortune appears here for the first time yet for some time after nero we hear no more of persecution of christians even domitian whom tertullian calls a quote, chip of nero for cruelty close quote, does not appear to have treated christians with much greater cruelty than the rest of his subjects according to some authorities it was in this reign that the apostle john was immersed in boiling oil uninjured and banished to patmos that a flavius clemens was executed by order of domitian is an historical fact but we have no authority for identifying him with clemens the bishop of the roman church in fact in the authentic records of domitian's reign the charge of christianity is nowhere put forward distinctly as a reason for the executions ordered by the tyrant though the atheism and superstition attributed to some of his victims may very possibly be heathen distortions of their christianity it is of course only too probable that christians suffered from outbreaks of popular fury both in rome and in the provinces but we meet with no distinct mention of any action of the state against them until the time of trajan it was to him that pliny the younger much perplexed at the number of christians discovered in his government of bithynia 
wrote his famous letter. Was he, he asked the emperor, to punish Christians as such, even if they were guilty of no offense against public law or morality? He himself held that it was his duty to punish those who admitted themselves Christians, and could not be frightened into recanting. For, he said, whatever their superstition might be, they deserved punishment for their obstinacy. Those who consented to worship the gods and the statue of the emperor in a form prescribed by himself, and to curse Christ, he at once dismissed. After putting two deaconesses to the torture, he discovered nothing but a perverse and extravagant superstition. Trajan approved in general Pliny's proceedings, and laid down for his guidance the principle that no search should be made for Christians, but that those who were brought to the bar should be punished with death unless they proved their paganism by sacrificing to the gods. Anonymous accusations were to be altogether disregarded. Trajan carefully limited his decision to the particular case and locality. Still, the emperor's rescript furnished a fatal precedent. Henceforth, whenever the magistrates were disposed to persecute Christians, there seems to have been no difficulty in finding law against them. Under Trajan, too, we hear the ominous cry, The Christians to the lions! There was no security against the rage of Jews or heathen. The aged Simeon, bishop of Jerusalem, is said to have been crucified to gratify the former. The fury of the populace of Antioch caused Ignatius to be torn by lions in the Colosseum as a spectacle for the latter. When Christianity itself was recognized as a crime, informers were not wanting, so that even when the emperors were not active persecutors, Christians still suffered from the unreasonable hatred of their pagan neighbors. As the mob of the towns fell into the habit of shouting for the blood of Christians for their own amusement, or as an offering to the gods in time of public calamity, Hadrian issued an edict against these riots, and required that in all cases proceedings against the Christians should be conducted with the due forms of law. The excellent Antonius Pius is not commonly regarded as a persecutor, and has the reputation of a kind and just ruler both in pagan and Christian authorities. Yet it is not altogether improbable that it was in his reign that Justin gained the title of martyr in Rome itself, being put to death by Urbicus, the prefect of the city, mainly in consequence of the hostility of one Crescens, a cynic, whom he had denounced as a charlatan, and that in his reign also Polycarp, the venerable bishop of Smyrna, was brought to the stake in his own city. The successor of Antoninus, Marcus Aurelius, the throned Stoic, disliked religious excitement in general, and the enthusiasm of the Christians in particular. The wise man should, he thought, endure with patience the thought of extinction after death, and pass out of life undemonstratively. However little belief he had in the old Roman religion, he thought it for the good of the state that it should be maintained. The proceedings of provincial governors against the Christians were at least unhindered, if they were not actually prompted and encouraged by the emperor. A terrible persecution befell the churches of Lyon and Vienne. In this case, the fury of the populace appears to have been unchecked by the magistrates, and even illegal methods of proceeding were permitted. 
it was in this storm that the venerable bishop Pontinus of Lyon died. Still, in spite of losses by death and desertion, a remnant was left, and these told their own pathetic story in a letter to the churches of Asia and Phrygia. To this reign is assigned the miracle of the thundering legion, composed partly of Christians, who in the campaign against Marcomanni and Cadi are said to have procured rain by their prayers when the imperial army was suffering the last extremity of thirst. The brutal Commodus, the son of the philosopher, is said to have been influenced by his mistress Marcia in favor of Christianity, which accordingly made way among the higher classes of Rome. Yet it was under him that Apollonius, a man of high station and distinguished culture, was put to death, together with the slave his accuser. The reign of Septimius Severus, in other respects also an important epoch, changed the relation of the state to Christianity. He was an African, his wife, Julia Domna, a Syrian, and the emperors of their race, Caracalla Elagabalus and Alexander Severus, were much more oriental than Roman. Men such as these had not the same feeling in favor of the Roman state religion, which had so strongly influenced the Antonines. They rather regarded with interest strange forms of belief and worship. Yet Septimius is reckoned among the persecutors. He referred all cases of holding unlawful assemblies to the judgment of the prefect of the city, and forbade with equal sternness conversions to Christianity and to Judaism. Confiscation, torture, and death befell many Christians. In Alexandria and proconsular Africa in particular, the persecution was so severe that men thought the times of Antichrist nigh at hand. Leonides, the father of Origen, Potomena, with her mother Marcella, and the soldier Basilides, who was her guard, were put to death in this persecution. Still more famous martyrs of this epoch are the young matrons Perpetua and Felicitas of Carthage, and the twelve martyrs of Salite in Africa who bore their testimony before the proconsul Vigelius Saturninus. Elagabalus was himself a dilettante in religion, and tolerated both the Jewish and the Christian fraternities, intending, however, in the end, to permit in Rome no worship but that of Elagabalus. The emperor Alexander Severus, casting about for objects of veneration in a faithless time, formed a kind of private chapel in which, with Abraham, Orpheus, and Apollonius of Tyana, he set up a bust of Christ. Nay, he is said even to have contemplated building a temple to his honor and adopting Christ among the gods of Rome. His mother, Julia Mamea, when staying at Antioch, summoned to her presence the great Origen, of whose fame she had heard. Such an emperor was not likely to be an active persecutor. He practically recognized the right of the Christians to exist and worship in the empire. The laws against Christians were not repealed, but in spite of the existence of these laws, there were for some years no persecution except a transitory one under Maximin, who was ready to persecute whatever his predecessor had favored. One emperor, Philip the Arabian, is even said to have been a Christian. Christianity was now in the popular estimation no longer the foul superstition that it once had been. It had attracted many of the wealthy and educated class. It had come to be regarded as a religion whose claims must at least be considered. 
there was no intrinsic reason why it should not take an equal rank with other permitted religions. With Decius came again a change. By this time, the growth of the Christian church in numbers and influence had become so manifest that Romans began to see the very existence of paganism threatened, while at the same time Christianity had lost something of its pristine purity and vigor. The world had entered the church. Persecutions from this time are no longer mere outbreaks of popular fury, but direct consequences of the action of the state. The earlier persecutions had been partial, and the victims comparatively few. Now, persecution was extended systematically to the whole empire, and a strenuous effort was made to exterminate Christianity. At the very beginning of his reign, Decius issued an edict, commanding governors of provinces under the severest penalties to put in force every means of terrifying the Christians and bringing them back to the old religion. All Christians were to sacrifice to the gods before a certain day, or be handed over to torture. The bishops in particular were marked out for death. Many were the instances of Christian heroism in this pitiless storm, but many fell away and lapsed outwardly at least into heathenism. The persecution did not cease, even with the death of Decius, for public misfortunes roused the fury of the city mobs against the stiff-necked people who would not offer propitiatory sacrifices to the tutelary gods of the state. Among the victims of the Decian period were Fabian, Bishop of Rome, Babylus of Antioch, and Alexander of Jerusalem. In this time of distress, the legend says, the seven sleepers began their long slumber at Ephesus. They roused themselves under Theodosius II to see the despised cross on every coin of vantage. After a short period of rest, persecution was renewed under Valerian, who directed his attack principally against the bishops, priests, and deacons of the church, and against senators, knights, and other persons of rank who had joined the hated community, thinking probably that if the more distinguished persons were induced to forsake Christ, the multitude would follow of its own accord. In this period of oppression fall the deaths of Sixtus, bishop of Rome, with Lawrence his deacon, of Cyprian at Carthage, and of Fructuosus at Tarragona. With the sole rule of Gallienus came remission, he put a stop to the existing persecutions and issued a letter to the bishops, granting them protection and desiring the pagan authorities to give them back their churches and cemeteries. This implies that the Christian communities were regarded, for the time, as at least lawful associations. Toleration continued under Claudius. Aurelian's preparations for a renewal of persecution were cut short by his death nor was the church molested by the government in the first nineteen years of Diocletian. In this period of rest, the church spread abroad greatly. Christians were entrusted with the government of provinces, and even professed their religion openly in the very palace of the emperor. This serenity was soon to be broken by the most severe storm that Christianity had to encounter. Diocletian, the son of a Dalmatian freedman, was one of the ablest rulers that ever mounted the imperial throne. His leading thought was to organize the unwieldy empire. To this end, he associated with himself, in A.D. 285, 
Maximian as a colleague in the empire, and afterwards, in A.D. 293, two others, Galerius and Constantius Chlorus in a somewhat subordinate position. With the title of Caesars, the superior rulers bore the name of Augusti. Diocletian's love for the old religion, or perhaps his policy, appears in his taking the name of Jovius, while he gave his colleague that of Herculius, as if invoking Jove and Hercules for the protection of the empire. If the legend may be trusted, Maximianus Herculius soon used his power against the Christians. Two years after he became a ruler, he is said to have caused the whole of the Theban legion, with their tribune Muritius, to be put to death in cold blood near Martigny in Switzerland, because they refused to act against the Christians. Diocletian, however, was not disposed to persecute the church. On the contrary, in the early part of his reign, many Christians had positions of trust about his person. But the Caesar Galerius, who was his son-in-law, a burly ruffian imbued with heathen superstition, became the tool of a party which was eager for the suppression of Christianity as the only means of preserving paganism. Diocletian shrank from a struggle, the horrors of which he clearly foresaw, but at last, with great reluctance, yielded to the urgency of his colleague, and assented to decided measures for the suppression of the faith of Christ. Three edicts appeared in rapid succession in the year 303, and a fourth in the following year, which in effect delivered over the unfortunate Christians to the fanaticism of mobs and the arbitrary will of provincial governors. By the first edict, assemblies of Christians were forbidden, their churches and sacred books were ordered to be destroyed, and church property to be confiscated. Those who refused to renounce their faith were to be deprived of all civil rights and dignities. Accusations against Christians were to be entertained, and torture might be applied to compel them to recant. Christian slaves, so long as they remained Christian, could not be manumitted. The disturbances which arose in carrying out this edict occasioned still further measures of severity. The second edict directed that all bishops and clergy should be imprisoned. The third, issued on the twentieth anniversary of Diocletian's ascension, was a kind of grim jest. It bore the form of an amnesty, and ordered the imprisoned clergy to be set at liberty, if they would but consent to sacrifice to the gods. If they refused this beneficence, they were to be subjected to torture. Under these edicts, persecution, though no doubt varying much in intensity in different provinces, became severe and general. Many met death with wonderful constancy. Old men, tender women, even young children became martyrs, often under circumstances of great horror, but many denied the faith, and many, stigmatized as traditores, delivered up the sacred books to save themselves. Still, it was felt that the end of all these horrors was not attained, and in 304 a fourth edict was published, which simply offered Christians the choice between death and sacrifice. Wherever heathen governors and heathen mobs were unfriendly to Christians, the work of torture and death went vigorously on. The greatest weight of this persecution fell on that eastern portion of the empire which was under the immediate rule of Diocletian and Galerius. Even their own wives, who are said to have favored Christianity, 
were compelled to sacrifice, and court officials were not spared. Diocletian and Maximian abdicated in the year 305, but the work of exterminating the Christians went vigorously on under Galerius and his colleagues. The western provinces, however, Gaul, Spain, and Britain, enjoyed comparative immunity under Constantius Chlorus, and afterward under his son Constantine, who was elevated to the rank of Caesar by the acclamation of the soldiery on the death of his father at York. For some eight years the Christians had to endure every kind of maltreatment and death. At last even Galerius was satisfied that it was impossible to annihilate Christianity and give to the gods of Rome their old supremacy. Sick and weary, he consented to put a stop to the massacres which distracted the empire, and issued from Nicomedia, in conjunction with Constantine and Licinius, an edict in which Christianity is recognized as an existing fact. The terms of this edict, which forms one of the most important epochs in the history of the church, are much to be observed. The rulers say, in their preamble, that they had been anxious to bring back to a good mind those Christians who had deserted the old customs of their forefathers. When, however, they saw that the result had been that many ceased to worship the God of the Christians without returning to the due service of their country's gods, they thought it most accordant with their well-known clemency and tolerance again to permit Christians to meet for worship, so that they did nothing contrary to the peace and good order of the state. They felt sure that the Christians, being now hurt by no persecution, would readily acknowledge the duty of praying to their own God for the emperors and the state, that the empire might maintain itself intact and themselves live a peaceable life in their own homes. Christianity was thus admitted to be a religio licita. For nearly three centuries it had been in actual existence. It seemed best, now that it could no longer be treated as an innovation, which was to an antique Roman much the same as an impiety, to attempt to adopt the god of the Christians among those who watched over the well-being of Rome. This edict did not wholly put a stop to persecution in the Asiatic provinces. But in the year 312, Constantine became master of the whole Western Empire by his victory over Maxentius, the ruler of Italy, at the Milvian Bridge. It was on his way to this decisive battle that he saw the sign in the heavens, afterwards called the Liberum, with the words Intautonica. Maximin, the other great opponent of Christianity, was not put down until the following year. The result of the defeat of Maxentius was an edict published at Milan by Constantine and Licinius, perhaps the most important ever issued by imperial authority. In this, the emperors give full liberty to all their subjects of adopting any form of worship by which the supreme divinity in the heavens may be propitiated. To Christians in particular, they grant absolute freedom of worship without any of the limiting conditions to which they had been subjected by previous edicts. The churches were to be restored to their original owners without money or price, whether they had been sold on their confiscation or granted freely to some favored person, the emperors undertaking to reimburse those whose property was thus taken away. The same law applied to other property which had belonged to Christian corporations. All these provisions the emperors enjoined their officials to put in force with all completeness and dispatch. End of chapter 3, part 1